we do need to see that the global public bad of a health pandemic that scientists are still trying to make sense of should be a trigger for more collaboration, for more openness to uh, working together because we're rolling this together. But what have we seen? We've seen the opposite. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Hello and welcome to today's episode of IFA's podcast, Die Kulturmittler, the title of which can roughly be translated as The Cultural Conciliators. My name is Dan Wesker. Social inequality, disenchantment with politics, restriction of human rights. These are issues that concern people and civil society actors around the world in different ways. In this podcast, IFA aims to create a space for progressive thinkers to present their ideas and solutions and introduces new approaches to issues that are relevant to foreign cultural policy. So, for this episode, we invited Obi Ezequizili. She's an economic policy expert and co-founder of Transparency International, but before I go on to list all of her achievements, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Obi Ezequizili, actually. My name is Obiageli, which often is um, shortened to Obi. My last name is Ezequizili, and I am a policy expert, economic policy and human capital development policy expert. I have traversed the public sector, private sector, civil society, and international development. And I currently uh, run the Human Capital Africa, the um, School of Politics, Policy and Governance, SPPG, And I continue to do my professional work as the Senior Economic Advisor of the Africa Economic Policy Initiative. Obi Ezequizili is also a former Vice President of the World Bank for the African Region and has served twice as Federal Minister in Nigeria. She is a co-founder of the Bring Back Our Girls movement, which emerged as a reaction to the abduction of Nigerian schoolgirls in 2014. And she is also trying to pass on her political experience with the School of Politics, Policy and Governance, which she just mentioned. Obieza Kwazili founded a program that provides education and support for young people who want to work in the political sector. The school is part of a bigger initiative which is called Fix Politics. The initiative aims, I quote, to elevate the office of the citizen to its rightful place in our nation and develop a political class of servant leaders. Considering the very name of this initiative, I asked her what it is about politics that is broken. What is broken about politics is that the um, supply side of politics being the political class in most polities today are alienated from the society that they serve. Therefore, the demand side of politics being the citizens in most democracies around the world are disaffected uh, with the way that the democratic process 
has been practiced. And the fact it has resulted often in poor delivery of outcomes of governance to uh, the society at large. The correction of this distortion of democracy is important. And that's what I refer to as fixing politics. Going back to that, you, you actually established a triangular democracy model. Could you tell me a bit more about the three components and why they're crucial to political processes? The triangular pillars of democracy came out of my scrutiny of how we could better understand what had gone wrong with a fundamental principle of competitive politics, politics that places competition as an ideal that would support the emergence of the best possible political leaders at different levels of interaction with citizens who wish to have competent, ethical, and capable people manage public affairs, the public space more broadly. And so to understand the role of competition as a way of ensuring higher degree of performance of political leaders, I decided to model the process, of course, the academic inquiry with the economic model of market. So I decided that if politics were a product, if it were a service, it would have three important pillars to the extent of how competitive markets operate. And so it would be the pillar of the consumers, the pillar of the suppliers, and then the pillar of the regulator of the market. And if you looked at that model, it does constructively convey what we see in democracies. We have the politicians vying for political office. They are basically presenting themselves as potential suppliers of political goods. And you've got the demand side being the electorate who constantly are chopping for the kinds of people that would run the public sphere so that they would have better governance. And then you've got the institutions of politics that regulate or arbitrate that process of political interaction between the demand side and the supply side. And so it neatly fits into my model of saying that there are these triangular pillars of democracy that are very systematic and integrated, and that any attempt at correcting the dysfunction in politics that is not holistic would not work. You also speak about a a value-based political class. Why did you decide to use the term class? Shouldn't a, a real democracy be free of classes and whatever divides us? You know, one of the things I try not to do is to get into semantic obscurantism. So one thing that is very clear is that you do have a class of people who present themselves and are voted for into political office. The fact that we use the word class to describe them is neither here nor there. 
because it simply means those who play the game of politics. And so a democracy already recognizes that there are politicians, that there is an electorate, and that there are institutions that regulate politics. So I wouldn't get into the semantics of class and democracy. It's simply a way of describing that you have the electorate on one side of the triangle, you've got the politicians or political class. When you take them as a community of people bidding for political office on the other end of the triangle, and then you've got the regulators at the apex of the triangle. So, based on this model, Fix Politics wants to structurally change politics in Nigeria. Obieza Quizili's approach is based on the idea that the citizens should understand their power and act on it. A few years ago, she tweeted, Who are those best placed to make greatness happen in a country like ours? Citizens, citizens, citizens. But while she is already putting a lot of effort into empowering the people, aren't there institutions and networks that can help this process from the outside? Obiezo Kazili explained to me where international cultural policy and international cooperation can come into play in this process of strengthening democracies. I do believe that if we looked at what's happened with democracy globally, there are lessons both from the north and the south of the earth. So we do know that There are matured democracies that are thriving and have managed to keep democratic ideals, democratic principles, democratic practices close enough to what meets the standards and the satisfaction of of citizens. There are also matured democracies that are in decline. There are democracies that are fragile. There are democracies that are nascent. So in all kinds of ways, democracies are being practiced and delivering at levels that vary. Underpinning all that I've said is the idea that there is often a political culture that begins to drive the political and the democratic processes in societies. So that whether you're looking at democracy as a practice or democracy as a principle, these political cultures have a way of determining whether democracies are progressive, whether they are in the decline, whether they are in decay, whether they are they have a future, whether they are turning authoritarian. So when you think of all of it this way, then you would realize how important it is that everything about the cultural, intercultural policy, the intercultural relationships can be leveraged in better understanding democracy, both at local levels as well as at global levels. Speaking about the global level, in an article for the Washington Post in 2020, Obieza Quazili wrote that we need a new approach for managing global risks in order to deliver real change for the most vulnerable. In her article, she stated that already by that time, April 2020, the economy of the African continent had severely suffered in the course of the pandemic. 
Clearly, some of these countries didn't have the financial safety to recover from the crisis very soon. So, she demanded for China, as the rich country in which COVID-19 started, to pay reparations to the African countries. That was nearly two years ago, and today we're still fighting the global pandemic. At the same time, other pressing issues that put the well-being of communities at risk have to be tackled nevertheless. So I wanted to know more about this idea of finding a new overall approach for managing global risks. What would that look like? The new approach would be one that is considerate of the enormous changes and swings that have happened in terms of geopolitical power in our world today. Imagine economies, whether in the east of the world, in the Latin Americas, in the Pacific, in Africa, have an important role to play in the discussions of how we manage our global space. The multilateral order that has served us since the end of the Second World War is not sufficient, it's not adequate, it's not inclusive. And so it is important that we should revitalize, we should redesign. And in fact, our redesigning should emerge from a place of imagining the world that we hope to see in the next 50 years. We need to integrate the changes that we see that are enormous, not just in terms of economic structural changes, but also in terms of global issues like climate change, the role of disruptive technologies, the enormous risks that we collectively bear as a result of the challenges of global criminality, whether they be criminal gangs that are cross-regional or globally networked, how do we also manage the consequences of disruptive technology while taking advantage of the enormous opportunities that they have handed to the world? How do we deal with cybersecurity? How do we even deal with the convergence of cybersecurity and the basic insecurity that is associated with the world where we have seen terrorism operate at the most heinous level. How about the challenges of climate change? The fact that a continent like Africa, which contributes less than 3% to the global warming conditions, is having to bear a disproportionate impact of that situation, whether it's in terms of the conversations that need to be had on adaptation or mitigation and how they intersect. The challenges of productivity of the global economy, especially in terms of the role that global trade plays, there are so many issues. The global norms, how nations relate in the 21st century and going forward. We cannot rely on the old ideas. New frontiers, such as the governance of the oceans, of the ocean rather, because we don't have oceans. So all of these require that we should have a new approach. We do need to 
understand that the that the concept of the nation state is also undergoing a lot of trauma there is a lot in terms of the division of responsibility across the spectrum of society whether it's the rule of business the rule of government the rule of communities the rule of civil society so there are so many global issues that have local implications that need to be discussed in an environment of mutuality of interests if we don't do that we will continue to have a lopsided world and we're going to have the dysfunction of a repetitive pattern of uh, what i call a stultifying great power competition that is not helpful to anybody yeah and how do you perceive the eu is dealing with this situation regarding uh, responsibility and 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 stance the eu has shockingly taken the part of least resistance and therefore you do not say the level of energy that should come from a very important community within a global world the eu almost takes a play a position of not wanting to upset either part of the great power competition so whether it is a great power competition going on between the us and china or between the us and russia you often find the eu strangely burrowing its head into the sun avoiding to take responsibility for the fact that the rest of the world cannot simply ignore any set of countries no matter how powerful they are determine what happens to our world no two countries should have such enormous power to turn our world to a duopoly situation we cannot afford to have the eu not rise up to the level of responsibility that it owes to use its voice appropriately and to act in collaboration with the continent that its near proximate neighbor Africa a continent with which it has history even though that history is a checkered one history that still needs a lot of resolution but it can actually turn a new leaf by seeing Africa as partner in that effort at getting our world back to the design table of how we will organize global relations and and what do you expect from international cultural policy actors such as ifa ifa has the prospects of building strong collaborations and partnerships with similar communities and institutions and individuals in a continent like mine or even the rest of the world and so it does needs to grow in stature and to see that there is a gap there is a role that needs to be played existing formalistic institutions that are identified as vehicles of countries and governments as constituted would not gain the same kind of level of credibility as an ifa would have in convening people to start the process of people to people 
which is the real heart of cultural interaction and understanding, and then to move it to the place where it begins to widen in concentric circles, bringing in more voices, more people, more diversities for uh, a future where we can create a new momentum for building resolution. We do not have mechanisms for dealing with dissent, dealing with differences. We can actually disagree without being disagreeable. We can reduce the times when conflict cannot be resolved. We cannot have a world where we, a meeting between countries, get to escalation, ruining the prospects of collaboration. And would you say that with the global pandemic, there's a momentum of change now? There is a momentum that could be leveraged, but it's currently being wasted. And that's because of the vacuum in global leadership. Where are our leaders? Even at national levels, you can see that democracy is in crisis. Leaders have vastly eroded their legitimacy in many democracies. So it is creating a problem where the the ambience of politics at the national level is moving, cascading, is sort of fouling the environment within which global public goods, public bads are being discussed. We do need to see that the global public bad of a health pandemic that scientists are still trying to make sense of should be a trigger for more collaboration, for more openness to uh, working together because we're rolling this together. But what have we said? We've said the opposite. How can it possibly be that the UK, the EU, would obstruct anything that has to do with the capacity of an African continent to produce vaccines. How does that show any momentum toward a new world where we're collaborating? It's the opposite we're saying. We're wasting this crisis and it's shameful that this is happening. So my sense is that because everyone is sadly focused on post-COVID recovery, it is standing in the way of what is most critical, which is a reimagining of our world. We are handed an opportunity to reimagine our world, but we're trading it off on the altar of going back to how we used to be before the pandemic. How we used to be before the pandemic was not the best. It was a world of inequality, remains vastly more unequal, It was a world of the winner-takes-all. It was a world where we could see clearly that capitalism has delivered on the promise of growth, but that growth is not shared growth, and therefore we do need to trigger a process of maximizing the best that capitalism can offer while at the same time paying attention to the lessons of what has not worked. We don't need to think of what globalization has helped the world to achieve and what then can be corrected in order that it can lay a stage 
for a prosperous world that's not lying side by side with the pernicious poverty that we see. Not acceptable, even in countries that are advanced economies, that significant catches of the population, of their population should be in poverty. No one should be remain poor in the 21st century world where the forces are aligned, whether it's in terms of technologies, as in terms of what science is, is, is moving us toward, whether it's in terms of the human capital that the world has been able to and continues to raise, whether it's in terms of the population of the world, the absolute presence of new sources of resources, the ideas. It's unbelievable what the opportunities are, but we allow the poor leadership of, the, of, of, of how to deal with the risks and the threats and the weaknesses to be a hindrance to the maximization of opportunities. The pandemic showed many of the problems in multilateral relationships even more clearly. And, as Obieza Quazili points out, during the pandemic, but just as importantly after it, there is a need for better dialogue and for a broad global understanding. And we need leaders who base their decisions on values that are aligned with solving the pressing issues of this century. That's it for today. Next month, in the upcoming German episode of Die Kulturmittler, we will talk about feminist foreign policy. For any suggestions or critique, please feel free to email us at podcast at ifa.de. My name's Dan Wesker. Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay safe. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.